And so now, Lord, we ask indeed, would you send forth your word? Would you recreate us today, even as we study your written word, as we study Holy Scripture? Open our eyes to see you in all your glory, to see your Son, Jesus, in all his glory. And we give you thanks and praise for all it is that you have done for us through him. And it's in the name of Jesus that we ask this. Amen. So, where have we been and where are we going? Do you remember where we've been in John's Gospel up until this point, up until today? In the upper room, that's right. We've been in the upper room with our Lord. We have tarried there for so many chapters, for five long chapters, and we've gotten to hear and see some of the beautiful things and remember the beautiful things that Jesus said to his first disciples the night before his death. And indeed, his words to the first disciples are, in fact, also words to us, almost as though we're sitting in the audience. You know, with my theatrical metaphors, it's almost as though we're sitting in the audience of a great big theater, and there on stage we see Jesus interacting with the other disciples as if there's a play going on. And then there's these moments where Jesus is talking directly to us, almost as though he's looking out, breaking scene, breaking the fourth wall that we call in the business the fourth wall. You know, he's looking out directly at us, looking us in the eye as though this is for us as well. I will not leave you orphans. He is praying for us. He has left us the Holy Spirit in his bodily absence. He um, has commanded us to love one another and has prepared us for the fact that Christians in the world, in that part of creation that is in rebellion against God, will experience some level of hardship, some level of persecution, some level of of uh, disjointure. Is that a word? We will be in the world, but not of the world. And the world will not like us. In fact, the world will even hate us because we belong to Jesus, because the world has hated Jesus Christ. Um, And so, and yet, he says, take heart, fear not. I have overcome the world. Um, So we have hope. We know that he, in his departure, um, he said to those first disciples and to us, don't be afraid, do not be troubled. I go to prepare a place for you so that where he is, we might be as well. And so where is Jesus now? He is at the right hand of the Father, and he lives to intercede for us. Just as he interceded for us once and for all on the cross, so now too he also prays, he intercedes in that sense of intercession being a prayer of supplication. He intercedes for us. He bends the Father's ear on our behalf to bring to his church, his body, all of those good things which are ours through faith in him. So any questions? Any questions about chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, all of those upper room chapters? Last week we looked in particular, a little something different happened in chapter 17 than in those earlier chapters. Remember that Jesus was doing something different. Instead of talking directly to his disciples, who's Jesus talking to in all of chapter 17? Just a little thought. God He's talking to the Father directly. He is praying. And that whole section is called the High Priestly Prayer. And his supplications to the Father on our behalf are sealed based on his first supplication, his first petition. Remember, in that whole series of verses, that first verse in chapter 17, he asks the Father on behalf of himself one thing before he goes on to ask for us as the body of Christ. And what is the one thing he asks for himself? Do you remember do you happen to remember? It's chapter 17, verse 1, if you want to look back and read it. Father, glorify me. And what is he asking the Father to do when he asks the Father to glorify him? What was that? Sorry. Yes, he's asking for eternal life for his disciples. And how is that going to happen? It's going to happen through his death on the cross. And in John's Gospel... Jesus' death is the hour of his glorification. And he says, the hour is near. The hour is coming. The hour is upon us. Now, Father, glorify me. And what he means is um, accomplish your salvation purposes through me. And um, God's purposes of salvation involve not some victory without pain and suffering, but rather that Jesus there is willingly saying that he will go to the cross in order to bring about um, the forgiveness of sins for the people of God and eternal life and healing and hope and all of those wonderful benefits of his cross. 
So any thoughts before we move on and start to look at chapter 18? Yes. Um, yesterday, Bishop Salmon talked about Jesus washing the feet. Mm-hmm. That was Wednesday. It was it Wednesday. He no, did talk. Not yeah, it was. That's right. But he did talk about it on Tuesday as well. He talked a little bit on Tuesday, a little bit on Wednesday. It was good. I didn't go Tuesday, but anyway, I thought his point was so interesting that as Jesus helped or did for his disciples, they can do it for us. Mm-hmm. He's such a good. He's so wise, and he so understands human nature and how much we are like Peter, where we say, Lord, I'll lay down my life for you, and we have no idea. We're not able. We we think we can do so many things, and it's all in our own strength that we take off, bite off more than we can chew. I do this all the time. This is why you all know that I have the danger of running late. It's not because I'm... It's because I'm trying to do more than I'm able to do. I'm trying to cram it all in, and I overestimate my abilities. And when we do that, we we um, close out. The, we don't leave room for the Lord to work through us. We we say, well, I'll do it all in my own strength. Thank you very much. Don't need your help. I'll lay down my life for you. How much did Peter know? And then he turns around, and what we'll see in this passage that we're reading from today, and you're right that Bishop Salmon started in chapter 13, and then he went on to chapter 18, which is what we're going to look at today, where he sees just how far Peter does go to lay down his life for Jesus. Um, he overestimates his abilities in his own strength, and he doesn't leave room for God. He is essentially saying, Jesus, I don't need you. Um, but Jesus, every hour, the truth of it is, every hour I need thee. Which hymn is that? I always forget. It's probably not in the hymnal anymore, is it? It is a good hymn. Every hour I need thee, right? It's in the price music. <laughs> I think it, yeah, I think it's moved on to there. Well, anything else before we start to read chapter 18? We're going to read the whole, ch- all of those verses 1 through 27. It's not the whole chapter, but we'll go on to look at 28 through 40 next week. Um, but we're going to read a lot of verses this morning. Anything else before we get to chapter 18? Okay. So looking at John chapter 18, verse 1, and we're going to read through verse 27. I'll start us off, and um, if you feel led to read, please read aloud a couple of verses and then give someone else a chance, and that way um, many people can read these verses out loud. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, procuring a band of soldiers and some officers from chief priests and Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that was to befall him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, standing with him. So when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Therefore he again asked them, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. I told you that I am he, Jesus answered. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. That's good. Jesus commanded Peter. Put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given you? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews seized Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Titus, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had counseled the Jews that it was expedient and 
man should die for the people. Now Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus, and that disciple was known to the high priest. And so he entered along with Jesus into the court of the palace of the high priest. But Peter was standing outside the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the maid who kept his door and brought Peter inside. The woman said to Peter, You are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the slaves and the police had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing around it and warming themselves. Peter also was standing with them and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have, have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby struck him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded? If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is, it, what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Anna sent him, still bound, to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, so they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster Wow, sobering, isn't it? That's, there's a lot of material in these verses. Remember that we've been in the upper room for so long. We've been hearing Jesus teach and talk. And now suddenly, do you have whiplash like I do? As we've been stewing in these words of Jesus, suddenly all these actions are happening so quickly. And one of the things I put on your, um, on your handout from last week is just to even break down the action for yourself and say, uh-oh, is there a drip? No. A draft. Oh, okay. That's better than a drip, but still unpleasant. I'm sorry about that. Um, the, when right now we're looking at all of these actions, and so I think it's helpful to just name the actions. And this is something that I've developed from. I've learned. I, we had to do it when I was a French major, but then also in entering, you know, seminary and looking at scripture, it's really helpful to just identify. What are some of these actions? You know, it's like going back to grammar and saying, okay, where are all the verbs? What are the actions that are happening in this chapter? Do you want to just start naming some of them out, lead, beginning at verse 1 in chapter 18? Praying. They're praying, yeah. And begin right at verse 1 in chapter 18. He's speaking. He's, then what happens? They go out. And then they enter a garden. And then the next verse. So quick. Boom, a band of soldiers came. And then, yeah, and then the betrayal happens. And even breaking down that betrayal, um, it happens in such an interesting way. How does the betrayal, what happens, what's missing from what we remember from Matthew, Mark, and Luke? Is there anything that you don't see that you would expect to see from what you... I know it feels sort of like a test question. I'm sorry about that. The ear being put in Yeah, that's a good one. And there's even something before that. So I'm going to put Jesus heals Malchus's ear. Yeah. They fell asleep. Yeah, they fell asleep and there was... And Jesus was sorrowful even to the point of death. And he was great drops of sweat, like drops of blood. So Jesus is, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus is praying in ang- in agony. Is this right? where he says something about taking this cup? Yeah. That's all in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, what else? 
how does um, Judas identify him for this whole band of soldiers in Matthew, Mark, and Luke? Yeah, he gives him a kiss. Does he do this in John? He lays down. Yeah, what happens in John? Who lays down? Does Judas lay down? I think the disciples, aren't there three disciples who fall asleep? The disciples fall asleep in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And Jesus says, could you not watch with me one hour? What other actions? Isn't this amazing that we can remember all of this from Matthew, Mark, and Luke? We didn't even read this just now. And remembering all these details from those other... There are soldiers. He said, I am he. Mary Kay said, when I am he, when he said, I am he, they fell down. Yeah. He said, Jesus says, Jesus says, I am he. And they, I think of it like, <laughs> Mary, go around. They all fall down. <laughs> he steps right forward and said, who do you see? Yeah. Right he's away. bold. Right. Who do you see? He's not, no, he's not timid. He's not cowering. He's not hiding. He's stepping Up forward. Front. Yeah, he knows what's going to happen. He's ready. They all fall down. That's not a merry-go-round, is it? It's um, ring around the rosy. (laughs) I knew it's some kind of rosy, round childhood thing. Okay. All these differences, aren't there all these differences? Is it helpful for you? I find it really helpful to write them down and to look at them. Can you see them over there? And just to say... What is going on here? Why is John showing us some different things than Matthew, Mark, and Luke are showing us? Do you remember, um, do you remember where John stands in, ter- in relationship with the writing, the timeline of the writing of the four Gospels? Was John written first, second, third, fourth in time after Jesus' death and resurrection? Do you remember? Last. John is written last, towards the very end of the first century. We get this idea of John, the son of Zebedee, was a very, he was probably a very young man as a disciple. I love thinking, thinking about that with Jesus, Jesus, you know, 30 and his disciples. We never think about this because in all of our Western art, they're depicted as men with beards mm-hmm. because they're wise and we, we want to respect them and respect the apostles. But I think they were a lot of teenage boys. I mean, I think they were, if you think about it, adulthood came so much earlier in those days. So I love thinking about John. How old must John have been if he was still alive in A.D. 90 writing this gospel? Um, and, and I love thinking about that. So he was a young man with Jesus, absorbing it all. He is probably familiar with at least one of these other gospels, either in an oral in an oral. Um, yeah, either, either he's heard it because they were passed down. The oral tradition was almost stronger than the written tradition of storytelling and even of scripture relaying. If you think about the Jewish scriptures, so much of it was passed down through from mouth to mouth rather than written down. They didn't trust written works, which is hard for us to imagine because we've had the print. What? Most people couldn't read. So how can you trust something that's written down if you can't read it? can't trust it but you've heard these stories your whole life and you know how they're supposed to go and you're going to tell someone if they're telling it the wrong way I mean just think about your own family gatherings my sister I have a terrible memory and if I say remember when we were kids and thus and such happened she'll look at me and she'll be like that didn't happen like that (laughs) she'll set me straight but isn't that funny how within that um, communal group of oral um, retelling of the truth we, we, we'll, we'll tell each other, no, that's not how it happened. It happened like this, remember? And a lot of that, what we have to remember is even in these late dates of the writing down of the Gospels, there's a lot of this oral telling of the Gospels. And I even think, and a lot of New Testament scholars really believe that Jesus' words, how many of us think, well, they didn't have a recorder. How do we know that Jesus really said this? Well, Jesus really said that because those disciples were memorizing and their memories were so much better than ours. I used to have at least 10 cell phone numbers or 10 phone numbers in my head. And now that I have a cell phone, I just press one. I've gotten stupid. I just press one button instead of having it in my head. And if we think back to what their brains and their memory would have been like, um, without that written word, they remembered so much more. And 
much bigger than ours, and so their capacity for memorizing was huge. And even when you see um, Jesus and Paul and the other scripture writers quoting Old Testament scripture, they, it's like they have it memorized. It's really amazing. It's really beautiful. And so they were memorizing the words of Jesus. They knew these things. So it's not that John doesn't know that these things happened. Rather, he's highlighting something else. He's underlining something else in the way that he's talking about Jesus being arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane and then being tried and all of that. Um, And how is it different? What do you see that's perhaps a little different? In John, I'm just going to go over... Um, so John, we see Jesus coming forward in the Garden of Gethsemane and saying, well, actually, in John, he doesn't say Gethsemane, does he? But of the four Gospels, John is the only one who tells us it was actually a garden. An interesting fun fact. Jesus there instead, it's almost as though he's already done this. He's already had this moment of prayer and supplication of the Father. He has resolved himself to what comes ahead. He knows that the cup will not pass from him. He will drink the cup. And so the disciples falling asleep, Jesus praying in agony to the Father, all of this appears to have already happened. John skips over that because he doesn't feel like we need to hear it again. John goes straight to this cohort, this Roman cohort, this mixed group of Roman and Jewish soldiers, which just a little footnote for you, how interesting that these sworn enemies are going to band together to arrest Jesus. just goes to show how um, concerted the effort is on the part of the world. Remember, the world being a technical term for all that is in rebellion and opposition to God. So these um, really normally enemies in opposition to each other, both Roman and Jewish, and then even within the Jewish religious authorities, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, those opposing political groups. It's like Republicans and Democrats getting together to do something. Oh, wouldn't that be nice if that happened? But here, they're getting together, banding against this common enemy, this common threat, who is Jesus. How sad. They're both banding together to arrest Jesus and to try him, as we're going to see. There are two trials that we're going to look at. So this whole group of soldiers comes, And what does Jesus do? He's not lurking in the garden somewhere. He's not hiding out. We don't see that Judas necessarily has to kiss him to identify him, although that was probably part of it. Jesus here is going right out. I do think that Judas also kisses him. Somehow Judas kisses him, and also Jesus is bold. And it's Jesus' boldness and his fearlessness that John is highlighting. Who do you seek? He comes out and says, And what happens when he says that? So I'm looking right now, I'm looking at um, chapter 18, verse 4. Jesus, and John gives us a little background, doesn't he? Jesus, and this is why why we're, we're seeing Jesus in this way. Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? Isn't that so strong of him? Whom do you seek? And it is so important to John to show Jesus in this light because it's true. It was Jesus um, hoping that there could be another way on one level, praying to the Father in agony? Yes. Then is he also resolved? Yes. And is um, what is about to happen in Jesus' death and resurrection, is it, an, is it a tragedy or is it a part of God's plan? And John is showing us, without a doubt, the death of Jesus on the cross is a part of God's plan. It was not, oops, look what happened to the Messiah of God. It's really, no, this is part of God's plan for his Messiah from the beginning. His plan for Jesus and Jesus' ministry and Jesus' plan as he is unified in will and purpose with the Father is far greater than humanity than we could imagine as humans, because God understands and accurately diagnoses the problem of human sin. Those who said we want a Messiah who will be victorious over Rome, we want an earthly king, even some of his disciples think this, we want an earthly king, we want a revolution, their understanding of the problem is not accurate enough. They don't think it's as bad as it actually is. They think, well, if we just could throw off this Roman leadership, we'll be all set. 
as the nation of Israel, as the people of Israel. Then we can usher back in that golden age when David was king, when God reigned from Jerusalem through his steward king, and when all the peoples of the earth fell down and bowed down and brought tribute into Jerusalem. That day will not come um, in the natural sense. That day is meant to come in a spiritual sense, and God is showing that through Jesus Christ. The problem is more than just oppression. The problem lies within each human heart. And yeah. Okay. So the one of the things that the people of Israel were hoping for was, um, okay, the, the golden age for the people of Israel was that day and age during both David and Solomon's reign. After Solomon's reign, the two kingdoms split apart, and there was the northern kingdom of Israel with the 11 tribes and the southern kingdom of Judah with just the one tribe of Judah. And the worship of God was somewhat compromised, even though they had the magnificent temple of Solomon. Then also throughout those years, what you see, and you see it through the prophets and through the historical books in the Old Testament. So I'm thinking First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, and then also um, then in the way the prophets during the exile and before the exile understand what's going on with the people of Israel. So Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, they all diagnose the problem as being the failure of the people of Israel to obey the covenant of God, to obey those Ten Commandments and everything else that followed along as application of the Ten Commandments. And even the very first commandment was, is love the Lord your God, right? Have no other gods before God. And that was not happening. They were continually mixing in the worship of Yahweh with the worship of the gods of the nations around them. And it was that syncretistic worship and that compromised worship that then um, led to the Lord's displeasure. And he said to them, he promised to, to them at the very end of Deuteronomy, if you don't obey the covenant, if you go on and worship um, the gods, ooh, that was, I hope everyone's okay over there. If you go on to worship the gods and the nations around you, look out, because you can no longer be in the land of Palestine. You can no longer be in the promised land. The promised land will spit you out. And so in retrospect, the prophets understood that that is exactly what happened when the pe first the people of the northern kingdom of Israel were brought away into exile in Babylon, and then over 100 years later when the people of the southern kingdom of Judah were brought, or first... Did I say Babylon? The northern kingdom went to Assyria. Southern kingdom went to Babylon. Um, and so that exile was seen as being um, judgment for um, their apostasy and their failure to keep the law. So these first century Jews, after they'd been brought back to the promised land, said, well, if we would just keep the law one day, if we would just, all the people in Israel, in Palestine, if all, those, all of us Jewish people kept the law perfectly for one day, then we would no longer have these Roman overlords. They saw the continuing foreign presence of another country um, dominating them as a people, which Rome did. First Greece did that, then Rome. They saw that as ongoing judgment for the apostasy of so many generations. Does that help? And so then they thought, they thought, well, it's a spiritual, and they did recognize it being a spiritual problem, but they thought if we just take away this, outside issue of Rome, if we can have a Messiah who will rise up against Rome and throw off these Roman overlords, then we'll be fine. The Pharisees also thought that, some of them thought that, but they also thought if we just obey the law perfectly, all of us, one day, then God will miraculously break in and throw off our Roman overlords. Does that help? So it's, it's an inaccurate diagnosis, and Jeremiah alludes to this when he, he talks about the new covenant that, he, that God is going to bring about. And we know, of course, the new covenant comes about through Jesus Christ. That the problem is not just an outward problem. The problem is a problem of the human heart. And Jeremiah talks about God giving his people hearts of flesh instead of hearts of stone. And here flesh is positive. Paul talks about flesh and he's talking about negative flesh. Here flesh is positive. We, we want to have soft and obedient hearts. Um, and that softness of heart can only come about through faith in Jesus Christ, through that transformation that comes about in God's one-way love, that God himself will obey the covenant on our behalf. He'll keep up his part of the bargain, and he'll keep up our part of the bargain. And it's that one-way love in Jesus Christ that then 
um, softens us in, into, um, into being obedient to God. And that was a lot that I would, didn't plan to say. Does that help? <laughs> so all of this to say they're hoping for a different kind of Messiah. Even Jesus' disciples hope for a different kind of Messiah. You see Peter pulling Jesus aside and saying, don't say that you're going to go to Jerusalem and die. That won't happen. And Jesus, what does Jesus do? He rebukes him and he says, get behind me, Satan. Because that would be a temptation that um, God's purposes could be established without the cross. Um, and so he's saying, no, this, I know the Father's will. I know, I know the extremity of the disease and I know the extremity of the cure. And the cure involves um, my willing, my willing death. And um, so that's why Jesus had said in the other Gospels, get behind me, Satan, to Peter. And we're going to see that again in this. But so all of this to say Jesus' death is a part of God's plan. And John is, is keen on showing that because a huge argument of um, Jewish potential Christians in those early years after Jesus' death and resurrection, lots of the Jews became Christians because they did believe that they did believe that Jesus was the Messiah and that he was raised from the dead and that the problem really was much more grave than just this political problem. They did say, yeah, I think we might even need a Savior who is both human and divine, who would die on the cross and rise from the dead. Um, But for those who didn't, they saw the cross as a stumbling block and they said, how could a man who died on the cross, how could that be a sign of God's love? How could the cross be a sign of God's love? For us, and and that's the question again today, and and so they also thought, how could God be in control of this? If His Messiah died the death of a criminal, the death of a cursed man on a cross, how was God really in control of that? That must have been an accident. That wasn't really a part of God's will and His plan. And so John is saying, Jesus is no victim. He is walking right into His destiny willingly, um, knowing what will lie lie ahead and John even directly says that Jesus knowing all that would happen to him he comes forward he is bold what happens when he says I am he they all fall down down. isn't that funny why do you think they all fall down what do you what is that about the majesty of Jesus yeah he is so powerful in this moment and this I am Remember, we've talked about I am statements. Do you remember any of the I am statements in John's Gospel? There are a lot of I am statements. Now, I'm going to be bad with my grammar. I, I know. Um, anyway, there's I, I am, and then it's not a direct object. It is whatever that part of grammar is that can also double as a subject. Ooh. Anyway. Predicate? Uh, uh, I don't know. Anyway, is that terrible that I've forgotten? And I didn't, I didn't research it before I came in this morning. So shame, shame on me. I, I think, I think there's one person who's been here in the past, and she knows, and she corrected me in the past. Yes, exactly. So she'd be very upset if I didn't know it. So I'm sorry. But there, Jesus often, seven times in John's Gospel, he says, "I am the." And whatever that next noun is, is a metaphor that's going to shed light on his identity and who God is in Jesus Christ for us. And, um, and then sometimes in John's Gospel, he just says, I am. Boom. With no other metaphor attached to it. Do you remember the metaphors that are often attached to these I am statements? We've talked about them. They're all done. We've seen all seven of them so far in the Gospels. I am the bread of life, chapter 6. I am the vine, and you are the branches. That's chapter 15. I am the gate. Yeah, that's chapter 10. What else does he say in chapter 10? I'm the good shepherd. Who said I am the light? Yeah, I'm the light of the world, chapter 8. And he says it again in chapter 9, which is interesting. What was it? I heard another one. I am the way, the truth, and the life, chapter 14. There's one more, I think. This is like trying to name the seven dwarfs. (laughs) Forgive me, Lord, for likening it to something so um, silly. There's one more in chapter 11 with Lazarus. This is a really good one. I've told you about this in my film that um, my actor playing Jesus was really bad at memorizing lines. And so by the end of the shoot, by the end of shooting, yeah, he would be like, I am the... I am the, and the whole crew would be like, resurrection and the life. <laughs> it's not that hard.
hard a line. You are the resurrection and life. So Jesus is the resurrection and the life. All of these seven beautiful I am statements shed light on who Jesus is, on who God is, and what it is that he does for us. But this I am statement, just like the one in chapter 8, at the end of chapter 8, do you remember what happens at the end of chapter 8? Is there someone who can flip back easily, stick your finger in uh, chapter 18 and just flip back to chapter 8? At the very end, I believe it's verse 58. He says, before Abraham was. Yes. And then what happens when he says that? They pick up stones to throw at him. Why do they pick up stones to throw at him? It's blasphemy. Why is it blasphemy to say, I am? God's name is I am. So the name of God revealed to um, Moses is Yahweh. And that word Yahweh, that name Yahweh, is the Hebrew construction for I am. Or I am who I am. Or um, I will be who I will be. It has this ambiguity about time. So you get this sense of eternity even within that verbal construction of God's name. But how amazing that God's name is not a noun. It's a verb. He's a doing God. He is there eternally for us throughout time and space, and his character is unchanging. And there's something about the majesty of his name that the ancient Jews were were so reverent about his name that they wouldn't even say it. And even as time went on in the manuscript tradition, as they would copy the manuscripts of the Old Testament books, they would omit even writing the the four consonants for the Lord's name because out of reverence for him. Because God's name is shorthand for all of his majesty and his character. So it's thought that perhaps they were even scrupulous about using that verbal construction when they spoke. They might not have even wanted to say, I am. Um, And so when Jesus says, I am, he is making a strong claim to divinity. He is saying that he is equal to God. He is stepping forth in all the majesty of the Most High. And they all fall down. They all fall down. And then I love how John repeats it. He asks them again, whom do you seek? And they answered, Jesus of Nazareth. And in verse 8, Jesus answers, answered, I told you that I am he. And again, the I am he in English, we add the he so it makes sense. But in the Greek, it is just the ego eimi. It is just I am. Um, and they all, and, and um, he says, I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. And this is the one last thing I want to look at before we move on to the trial before the high priest. Well, first of all, just a little sub-note. Before we go back to chapter chapter 18, verse 9, in chapter 10, what happens? Simon Peter draws his sword. He's bold. Bold Peter draws his sword. And what happens? He cuts the ear off the high priest's servant. And you know what's so interesting is John tells us the name of the high priest's servant is Malchus. Why would he do that, do you think? Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't tell us the names. What's that? He's naming names. Well, there's something so amazing. There's so many people who are unnamed. Like the woman at the well in Samaria, remember in chapter 4? She doesn't get a name. So why is it that this person who appears for one verse is given a name? Do you have any thoughts about this? Any? It might be that John knew him. It might be that the community that's going to hear John's gospel first knows Malchus, and they can say, oh, yeah, we know Malchus. There's a great example of this in the other gospels, that when Jesus is carrying his cross, who carries Jesus' cross for him? Simon of Cyrene. Why would they mention the name of Simon of Cyrene? Well, when you look at the book of Romans at the very end, Paul talks about that same family. And so it might be that that same family was in the church at Rome, and so they needed to know, oh, you know, you know, Simon of Cyrene, the one who carried Jesus' cross for him. And that that Simon of Cyrene might not have been a disciple until that moment when he carried Jesus' cross. That might have been the transformative moment for him in becoming a believer in Jesus and a disciple of Jesus. And so um, Richard Bauckham, who's a famous New Testament scholar, and he spends this whole big, long, boring book on talking about names in the New Testament. But I get really geeked out when I read it because I get so excited about these names. 
it is probable that because so many people were unnamed, when the Gospels or the Epistles, when the New Testament names someone by name, it's like putting it in a highlighted pen. And it's as though the human writer and the Lord through the Holy Spirit is highlighting this for those first people reading this gospel to say, hey, you know that guy Malchus? As if in their church, you know the guy who sets out the coffee every morning? Did you know that he came to faith because he had his ear cut off by Simon Peter and then he put his trust in Jesus? Because what happens to him in the other gospels, it doesn't happen in John, but in Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 22, verse 51, do you know what happens? Jesus heals his ear. I don't know about you, but if my ear was cut off and then, uh, and then this man who was about to die on the cross healed it, it would probably change my life. And so we can sort of intuit and guess and surmise that Malchus became a disciple of Jesus, became a follower of Jesus, and was um, played a big role in that first church. Um, so there we have Malchus. Then also... Um, one of the things that Jesus said, what does Jesus say in verse 9? What is to fulfill the word? And where is the word? Does anybody have a... Let these men, let these disciples go. Yeah, take me and let them go. Let them go. Take me and let them go. Where does Jesus say those words? John is saying it's to fulfill Jesus' word, which is really interesting because he sees Jesus' word as divine and holy scripture right there. Jesus there, there is fulfilling his own prophecy. He is showing himself to be, I mean, that's one way of showing himself to be the Son of God. If you just flip back to chapter 17, verse 12, what does Jesus say? While I was with them, I protected them in your name, which you have given me. Mine says, I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction. He is talking about spiritual guarding, but here he's also talking about physical guarding and physical protection. So this, here's a little um, diagram. The Garden of Gethsemane would have been a walled garden like this. And if Jesus is here, if all these other disciples are here, And Jesus is here. This, all these soldiers are here. Jesus is saying, take me and let them go. Take me and let them go. And he there is fulfilling the promise that he says in John chapter 10 when he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The disciples are the sheep. And we too, as Jesus' disciples 2,000 years later, are his sheep. And Jesus, the good shepherd, not only provides for us, protects us, but he um, loves us even to the uttermost point, and that he lays down his life for the sheep. He also says in chapter 10 that he is the door to the sheepfold, the gate to the sheepfold. And in the ancient days, those, um, those shepherds, the sheepfold looked a lot like this garden because it had walls on three sides, but there was very often no actual door, no gate like you would see at a sheep pen today in the 21st century in England or Ireland or the United States. There was no door. What he means by saying he's the door in that chapter, a lot of the research would suggest that the shepherd would himself, once the sheep were all in these three walls, then at night, because that would only happen at night. During the day, they'd all be out feeding. And then they'd come on back into the sheepfold, and then the shepherd would lay down so that none of the sheep could cross him to get out, and so that no predators could get in to eat one of those yummy sheep. And so we see that with King David. King David is so powerful and strong, even with just a few rocks. It said that he killed bears and lions. He protected the sheep of his father by even laying down his own life, by being willing to risk and sacrifice his own safety on behalf of the sheep. So here we see Jesus enacting his own world's words demonstrating himself to be the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And he will, he will do that the next day, um, the next in a few hours from this arrest in Gethsemane. Any questions about that before we move on at a zippy pace to the trial? <coughs> One of the 
Oh, we're going to go to that. Oh, good question. There are variants on the same name, actually. It, it's not as different in the original language, the, the variants on the variant of the name. The bigger question is, why is there Anna, Annas and Caiaphas? Why are there two high priests? And that's a good question. Wasn't one the son-in-law or the... They yeah, that's what it says, Annas. isn't it? Um, but you know, nobody names children Malthus or Ananias or Caiaphas. I know, we've lost that. Well, I wouldn't want to name them Annas or Caiaphas. They're bad guys. Oh, the blue better? I'm sorry. you got to tell me this stuff. I don't know. The blue writes so much. Okay, okay. Sorry about that. Um, the, the, um, yeah. Annas, well, he was the father-in-law. Father. Yeah. So let's look at that. It sounds like we have questions more on the upcoming part than on the part we just studied. So let's look right and right now. We're going to go right into... Um, Chapter 18, we're going to begin at verse 12, right? Which is the trial. Beginning with the trial. The trial of Jesus seems to occur in stages. There's a trial before the religious leaders of Israel. And the question is whether or not that is actually according to Jewish legal standards or if it was kind of a kangaroo court. Um, And there are different stages of that trial. There's an informal trial that we'll see before Annas. And then Jesus is taken on to Caiaphas. And the more formal trial before Caiaphas that we see in the Synoptic Gospels is a little different than what we see here in front of Annas. And so Jesus says different things in those different contexts. And so if you were to go and you were to read the trials, if you felt like comparing them, a comparison is always helpful. The trials occur in Matthew 26, Mark chapter 14, and Luke chapter 22. And some of the different things that you'll see here, Caiaphas, okay, so why are Caiaphas and Annas both called the high priest? Well, in, um, in, according to Jewish law, the high priest was the high priest for life. Oh, once, I mean, in some ways, in our church, we're ordained for life. Once, once ordained, always ordained. In other churches, like, think of the Methodists. The ordination is movable. No, it's not maybe the Methodists. It's maybe more Presbyterians. You're ordained for a purpose. For a time, and then when you're not serving, they don't really see you as still being ordained. But the high priest of, of the Jewish people was seen as being the high priest, the number one high priest for life. Um, and so... Well, why did they leave? Excuse me. Why did they take him to Annas first? Okay, yeah, we're going to talk about that. So if Annas was high priest for a little while... And then what happens under the Roman leadership is that the, the leaders of the Jewish people, the Romans would actually put their own people in place, or the people that they felt like they could control who would be docile, were the only ones who were allowed to be in leadership. And so the Romans would change the Jewish leadership pretty frequently, much more frequently than the Jewish law said to do, which was very disturbing for the Jewish people. And so in some ways they would see, what was that? I know, we change our leadership pretty frequently. It's kind of sad because once you get in there, it's like such a big job. Then you learn it, and then you're out, right? Well, so what we think is going on here, we can only, we can only you know, take the information that we have, the facts that we have, and make a couple of jumps. But it appears as though Annas was high priest. And then we know from historical records that his sons were all high priests after him. And then... Caiaphas is his son-in-law who was high priest and it might be that Annas is this clearly a very powerful ruling high priestly family um, they had a lot of favor with the Romans if they had so many candidates from their family put forward for high priests but the Romans probably changed them out for their own purposes but the Jewish people still recognized Annas as high priest once a high priest always a high priest and as the patriarch of this family that continues to hold office I would imagine that Caiaphas, his son-in-law, deferred to him, even if Caiaphas is the one actually wearing the hat. You know, so if the Romans say, Caiaphas, you're it for now, um, even though his brothers-in-law had been it before, he would still, behind doors, go back to Caiaphas and say, is this okay? So it makes sense, then, that Jesus goes, um, is brought first to Anna. A lot of this is true within, I mean, even within families. Children, children know who to really ask. They know, you know, I mean, very often it'll be, Dad, can I do this? Go ask your mom. Right? 
mom, can I do this? Go ask your dad. You know which the where the buck stops, and they'll often try to go to the first person to see if they can get a more favorable answer, and then the buck stops at another person, or even within a system or an organization. Um, and so here they're trying to go straight to the t they go straight to the top. They go to Anna's first, and then they're going to go to the official high priest Caiaphas afterwards. Okay, so we're looking at this. He's brought to Annas, who's the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. And remember, back in chapter 11, Caiaphas had advised the whole council that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. He prophesied unknowingly in chapter 11. And then we find out that Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Who do you think this unnamed disciple is? John, John I know. How amazing that this fisherman in Galilee, this son of Zebedee, had these high priestly connections. But it's not impossible. It's actually quite likely. What was that? You think Judas? Oh, that's interesting. I mean, I think you're right, John. Yeah, I think John had these connections. Um, and I can go into it, but it's kind of interesting to think of this young, young boy, but Clearly, there seems to also be a family connection with Jesus. We can go into that later. It's probable that they were cousins. I, I agree with you, Trudy, 100%. And you see, you see the, the beloved disciples at the foot of the cross, and we'll see this later, that Jesus entrust his mother Mary into this beloved disciple's care and that would be most likely to happen if there was a family relationship as well as a friendship um, so but we could go we'll go into that when we get to chapter 19 a little bit more so there are these two disciples one has an in he gets in the door um, Simon Peter he goes out and opens gets the door open for Peter Peter has professed that he would lay down his life for Jesus and Jesus there, um, so Peter, Jesus is upstairs in this house, on the inside of this house. The other gospels say he's upstairs, and Peter's downstairs. We also see in John's gospel, it's said that Peter's in the courtyard outside. Jesus is inside. Jesus is being asked all of these questions by the Jewish authorities, right? And what kind of questions is Peter being asked? Do you know Jesus? And so it could be said that here, if this is a courtyard, Peter's down here saying, no, I don't know him. And Jesus is up here testifying and bearing witness. And how does Jesus testify and bear witness? How does he stand strong in the midst of the interrogation, in the midst of the questioning? What does he say about his teaching? What does he say about who he is? How does he bear witness? He says, I've always talked in the synagogue, and I've spoken nothing in secret. Yeah, he's standing, he's not intimidated, is he? Peter down in the courtyard is intimidated by a servant girl into saying, no, I don't know him. And they were there with him. They saw him in Gethsemane. No, I don't know him. No, I don't know him. And he is in his flesh, out of fear, denying Jesus, failing to bear witness to who Jesus is. Jesus upstairs is being asked about um, his disciples and his teaching. He deflects the question away from who are his disciples. He's again protecting them, isn't he? And then about his teaching, he's, he knows the Jewish law. He knows that they need to ask other witnesses in order to convict him. According to Jewish law, the accused did not have to bear witness against himself. Um, they had to base their case on the testimony of someone else. And we see in the Synoptic Gospels that they do, in fact, do that. There are other witnesses, there are witnesses that come forward. And Jesus here is standing his ground. He is not intimidated. He says, why do you ask me? Go ask other witnesses if you want to convict me. Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. And they perceive his strength as insolence. He is struck in verse 22, and Jesus talks again about bearing witness. If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But, what if I, but if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Jesus here bears witness to who he is by standing in strength before them. And he shows that he, in fact, is not the one on trial. And we're going to see this later on when we look at the trial before Pontius Pilate. 
Jesus appears to be on trial before his death, and these human judges are judging whether or not he is who he says he is, whether or not he is the Messiah, the Son of God. And he is, he is saying by word, by action, um, by his silence even. In the other Gospels, we see that he is mostly silent. So when we hear him speaking up, he's strong in his witness. And it's been said earlier that um, the, the witness is about who he is. John the Baptist bears witness. It says in John 1:15, John the Baptist bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. We hear about testimony all along, the testimony of John the Baptist. And then later on in chapter 8, Jesus himself talks about how his works bear witness to who he is. The signs and the miracles that he's done show those who follow him and those, those in the crowd that he himself is in fact from God. And so what we see down here is that we are downstairs in our sinfulness, in our fallenness, like Peter. How often have we failed to bear witness to who Jesus is? Whether it's a failure to identify ourselves as his disciples, like, like Peter, or if it's even in our actions, uh, even just the slightest slip of gossip from our mouth betrays um, and denies our identity as followers of Jesus. Even any slightest sin on our part betrays and denies our identity as disciples of Jesus. And so we find ourselves in that, um, in our own strength, downstairs, in the courtyard, outside, when we sin, failing to bear witness to who Jesus is, denying Jesus in his majesty, in his lordship over us, in all that he has done for us. And yet, even as we're downstairs in our sin, outside in the courtyard, when we deny Jesus, we know too that because Jesus has been upstairs um, before the authorities in heaven and on earth, bearing perfect witness to who he is and who the Father is in all of his holiness, and righteousness and all of his compassion and mercy. Jesus has fulfilled the law perfectly. He never gossiped. He never let slip a, a, a stray word that would hurt someone else. He never bore um, anger and harbored resentment in his heart against someone else. He was perfect, spotless. He bore witness to who God is in all of his holiness, in all of his righteousness, and then by going to the cross in all of his mercy for us. And so even when we find ourselves bearing false witness, um, lying or betraying Jesus, denying Jesus in our words or in our deeds, we can have hope because we know that Jesus upstairs, simultaneous to Peter's denial, he was fighting the good fight. He was standing firm in all of his righteousness. He would go to the cross for us so that even in our sin, even in our weakness, we know that God is not against us, but in Jesus Christ he is for us. And he has forgiven us our slips, our denials, our betrayals even, just like he forgives Peter and reinstates him after his resurrection. And so um, we, like Peter, fall, and yet God does not abandon us. He sees us, he knows us, and he loves us. In Luke chapter 22, verse 61, during Luke's account of this very same moment, Luke writes, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. In the middle of these two trials, the trial downstairs before the world, the trial upstairs of Jesus, Jesus somehow could see Peter. It was probably a lot of open air and no windows and few walls. He could look down and see Jesus, or see, Jesus could look down and see Peter, and he um, looked at him, he saw him, and he loves him. And he looks at us, even in our weakness, he knows it, the thoughts and intentions of our hearts are not hidden from him, and yet he still says, I love you, and I died for you. So let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, we thank you that you do not abandon us even when we have abandoned you, and that you see us in all of our human weakness, our human frailty, and our sin, our failure to bear witness to you in word and deed, and yet you have fought the good fight. You have borne witness to the uttermost, even to the point of death on a cross, so that we might be with you eternally, so that we might be forgiven and reinstated, just like you forgave and reinstated Peter. And so now we ask, comfort us um, in 
restore us today even. Um, Show us our hidden and secret faults. Show us those slips of the mouth that betray us, that betray um, who you are, that cause us to be aligned not as your disciples but as disciples of someone else. Um, And yet, Lord, uh, comfort us, heal us, forgive us, pardon us, restore us, and send us out with your Holy Spirit to bear witness now in the strength of the Holy Spirit and not in our own strength to who you are and what it is that you have done for us in going to the cross. So we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.